This is a podcast where I talk to people with disabilities to hear their stories. I wouldn't expect anyone to know what life is like for someone who can't walk, can't see, or can't hear. But we have a responsibility to learn and grow throughout our lives. And this podcast is meant to help to see what life is like for someone on the other side. Welcome to Ability. On this episode, I talk to my friend Angie Wallace Skaggs. Let's get started. So how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. It's a good day. It is a good day. It's a beautiful day. Absolutely. It's a little hot for me, but I'm whiny, so that's just... (laughs) Oh, and I'm like a lizard. I need a hot rock to be on all the time. (laughs) I have OI, of course, but tell me about OI as if I know nothing. What's your perspective on it? My perspective is when people ask me what's wrong with you, which I get that a lot. I try to explain to them that this is commonly referred to as a bone disease, but it's not. Um, That it's a collagen disorder, and collagen is the elastic part of everything about you, from your uh, cell wall coverings to your organs, your muscles, ligaments, tendons. And it's the reason that your healthy two-year-old can jump around like a fool and fall off the bed and get a bruise and bounce back up and giggle about it. And it would put me in traction for two months because there's no elasticity to my bones. They just break like chalk. That's pretty much the way I describe it. I think that's how people understand it easier. My favorite is when people don't ask about the chair. They just ask why my head's so big. That's my favorite. <laughs> well, that, that's pleasant. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, n- typically it's children that do that. And, you know, I've never had an adult do right. that. But it's never a chair question. It's like, you know, your head's really big. That's fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know. funny. I'm of a certain age where I get the little head cocks from the kids. And um, the little boys always say, why are you so little? It's never anything else. It's why are you so little? Little girls consistently say, are you a mommy or are you a grandmommy? Uh, Well, gee, thanks, kid. I look like a grandmommy, but uh, (laughs) neither. So that's what I get. When did you first realize you were different? That would probably be when I was about six years old. The first time I was ever taken and left at Shriners Hospital in St. Louis. Um, a teenage butthead uh, made fun of me for the first time in my life and called me a shrimp. And that's when I knew, hmm, this sucks. Yeah, I imagine that was, a, a, as a kid, that was probably a very uh, hurtful experience. Very much so. I cried for hours. So did your parents just leave you at Shriners? They had to. Yeah. Yes, they had to. Back in the 70s, the rule with Shriners was they had a, at that time, a California child psychology take on it that the children behaved better without their parents. Well, that's because we were scared spitless. The parents, when they would drop us off, when we were admitted, they had 20 minutes to settle us and leave. Because I live in Kentucky just south of Evansville, Indiana, 
and I was going to St. Louis, mom and dad could only come see me on Sunday afternoons. And visitation was only from one to four. So that's all I ever got to see my parents when I was in the hospital. And sometimes when I was a kid, the longest I was there was for 12 consecutive weeks. That was awful. And they also weren't allowed to be on campus if you were having surgery. They weren't allowed to be there at all. Wow. Yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible. That's that's something that I've never heard. I've never heard of anyone having that experience. That sounds really awful to be a child. You're in these, you know, white rooms with people you've never seen before in your life. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the, the cool thing about Shriners, the way it was when I was a kid, if the people working there really fit, they stayed there till they retired. So it became family. And I even had a friend that I became very close to and still am 40 some years later. Well, 43 years later, actually. Um, we're still very close. We're like sisters. She's from Tulsa. I'm from Henderson, Kentucky. And they would um, schedule all of our inpatient uh, admissions and procedures together. Even surgery, we were taken together. So that helped. So it was kind of like a buddy system. For the two of us, not for the other kids, but it was for us just because we got so close. So we've touched on it a little bit, but what was it like for you growing up? I had kind of a different childhood because, number one, I'm an only child. Um, my parents were told not to have any other children that, quote, they would all be just like her, unquote, when now we know I was just a mutation, just spontaneously occurred. So, you know, the medical establishment cheated mom and dad out of the rest of their family, basically. Um, but my dad worked for the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife on one job, and then he was a city firefighter on another job. So he would work 24 on on the fire department and 48 off. And 48 off, he worked for the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Well, we lived on the department. The house was provided, and we had no neighbors for five miles. So I had a very isolated childhood, um, and I hated it. Hated being alone that much. So it was basically just my mom and me because my dad worked and my mom didn't. I was not a happy kid. I am way happier as an adult. What was it like for you in grade school? I wasn't allowed to go to school by the school board until I was 10. I was in the fourth grade before I was ever allowed inside of a school building because I was a, an insurance liability. And the school wouldn't have it. That sounds very kind of them. Yeah, oh, yeah, very. Well, the laws were so different back in the 70s. But once I went to grade school, I went to a little tiny country school um, very close to my house. In fact, that's probably where all those neighbors were, five miles away. And the instant mom took me in the doors, the kids loved me. I never was, I was never one time bullied. In grade school, the kids all took care of me. I never once got hurt in school. There was too many kids there waiting for me to fall over and pick me back up. So the grade school experience was phenomenal. 
and I'm still friends with these people, and I'm almost 50. Did you ever have trouble getting around in school? Yes, I did. Um, Our cafeterias were always in the basement until I went to high school. And I wasn't allowed to walk in school until I got in middle school. So I never got to go to the lunchroom. But they did always let a couple of kids stay with me during lunch. So it was always my best buddies. Um, And if I had classes that were technically upstairs, they would move them downstairs for me. So, because we didn't have elevators. Our school buildings were way too old for that. And there was no ADA especially older school buildings, I find, are still catching up to ADA in some ways. And my high school didn't have an elevator for the longest time. So you had a multi-level high school as well. Yep. Well, see, I didn't. They've added on about 20 years ago to ours. But, of course, when they added on, they had to make it accessible. So kids today have no idea what that's like. My high school, to get around the no elevator thing, they had this uh, stair lift. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It kind of goes around the railing of the stairs. And it was probably built in the 70s. I think I timed it. It took two minutes one way. So that was always fun. So if you were on the top floor and the lift was on the bottom floor, it'd take you five minutes at least. Oh, good Lord. How long was your bell? I was always late to class. Uh, And they wouldn't let me have a key to the thing because you know safety of course so i had to go find someone who was privileged enough to have the key to the lift anyway so so there's fun times so (laughs) no not really i was always allowed to leave class 10 minutes early to stay out of the crowd i think we worked it yeah well the way we worked it if i recall was most of my classes were on the same floor i wasn't going up and down every period so that helped a lot and um you know, like, it wasn't that big of a dish issue. If I did need to leave early, they didn't snicker at me. Although then you're missing content in the class the earlier you leave and that. Anyway, what adaptations have you had to make to the world around you? Uh, the most consistent has been for driving. Um, driving <laughs> was a pain for me. I was bound and determined to do it. My mother was bound and determined I would not to do it. And fortunately for me, I had a disabled veteran for a friend who was one of my dad's hunting buddies. And he got basically pushed himself up as tall as he could in his wheelchair and said, yes, by damn, she's going to drive. And this is what we're going to do to help her drive. And before I knew it, there was a package on the doorstep with hand controls. And he came down and he put hand controls in my mom's car, drove my mom's car back to the house and said, come on, you're going driving. And I watched my mother nearly have a massive heart attack. I would still, I would say most consistently it's been with cars. Um, To me, it's ridiculously expensive. They have ridiculous government control on it now. When I was a kid, basically... We could order them for $275, and they could install them themselves, and that's exactly what we did. We've also had um, a manufactured home uh, custom-built now. We ordered it with 36-inch wide doors. They cut the kicks off of all my cabinets, you know, the toe kicks. 
So that dropped all my cabinets four inches. Um, I have a built-in wall oven that's lowered. I have a cooktop, a gas cooktop in my countertop. So that's dropped for me. We have an island that is what I would call normal height. And that holds my dishwasher and a built-in microwave. So they've lowered the microwave for me. Let's see, what else have we done? Oh, we built a custom porch onto it with a 19-foot-long ramp because three years after we moved in, I did have to go into a power wheelchair. I'm not in it 100% of the time like they want me to be because it's just not feasible. By and large, I am in it most of the time. Is it the transportation of the power chair that makes it not feasible? Yes. It's not quite like you can put it in the back seat of a car. No, and I did buy a chariot. Do you know what a Bruno chariot is? The name doesn't strike a bell to me, no. Well, it's a lift, but it's on um, articulating wheels. Uh, it has a, a shaft that fits inside of a resitch, not on a ball hit. It's a shaft. Um, so when you back up, the wheels on the chariot turn, which sounds like a really amazing adventure ad, invention, but it's like they stopped halfway with the the engineering of it. Um, your wheelchair is tied down to the bed of this lift, and it's for a passenger car, not an SUV or a van or a pickup, just a car. They have no way to fix the bed of this thing, the lift itself. And I have no choice but to go over railroad tracks regardless of where I go here. And the bed flops. So when you ease over railroad tracks, your, you know, $70,000 wheelchair is flopping and looking like it's going to come through your back window. And my wheelchair literally fell apart, completely apart, coming home one night, pitch black, and if it hadn't been for the wiring harness made so well, I wouldn't have arms to my chair because I went seven miles and didn't even know it till I got home. What was your relationship like with your parents? My relationship with my dad um, is still to this day pretty strained. Um, he doesn't want to talk about anything from my childhood. Uh, I've had over 100 broken bones and I've had 40 surgeries. Uh, dad still can't deal with it. Uh, my mom and I can talk about anything at any time, day or night. My parents are still married. Of course, um, going through everything that they did with me, it was hard on their marriage and very hard on their relationship. I have a good relationship with my mom, but a difficult relationship with my dad. You mentioned you've had over 40 surgeries. I know, mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, we've lost count how many surgeries I've had. We have, we have no idea. That's a hard thing for us to keep track of. But, yeah. uh, you know, was that really often when you were a child? Was that happening very regularly for you? Um, every three to six months. Uh, the, the time that I stayed in Shriners for 12 weeks, um, I had actually taken a fall, and I'm I'm betting we all do this, but I lied about breaking both of my legs. I broke my elbow and couldn't lie about that because it was just hideously broken. I mean, like, obviously misshapen, out of shape, 
you know, couldn't lie that one for nothing. But I was in bilateral long leg braces with a pelvic band or a chair brace, whatever you want to call it, um, on crutches. And when I fell, I fell face first, but I tried not to fall. And doing that, I broke both of my femurs. But I had my intramedullary rods in, my first ones. And I was... I was 10 then they had been placed when I was like six and a half so they were ready I was ready to throw those rods anyway because I'd outgrown them um but I lied to mom and dad about breaking my legs but I wouldn't let them take me out of my braces which was so not like me because I despised those things and uh, when they finally discovered it things that healed badly and then rods started migrating because of healing badly. And I ended up having seven surgeries in 12 weeks. It was really bad. The moral of the story is when you break a bone, just say so. Don't hide it. I'm sure the moral of the story for your parents was don't lie to your parents. <laughs> well, yeah, probably that too. But I was really good at that when I was a kid. I never was. Like, I was always, like, transparent. Like, I would try, but I was never that good at it. Well, my mom would nail me, but I tried. Repeatedly, I tried. Yeah, I couldn't even ever get away with playing hooky from school. You're like, Mom, I don't feel good today. Well, we're going to send you to school anyway. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, you're not bleeding. You don't have a sucking chest wound. Your skull is not split open. Bye-bye, Jacob. Yeah, you know, you don't have a fever. You know, you can breathe. You don't have a broken leg. See ya. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, which in hindsight, that's good parenting, but it sucked as a kid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you cannot let a child get away with murder just because they're cute and little and have a disability. Fortunately, that was one of the first things that um, the doctor that delivered me told my parents is, Whatever you do, do not let this child take over because she will. She will not be a dummy, and she will be quite the manipulator. And you know what? He was right. I tried everything in the book. If you could have any job, if education, cost, and physical ability were not a factor, just pure enjoyment, what would you most like to do? Probably run a zoo. You really like that Matt Damon movie, don't you? I've never seen it. Oh, there's a Matt Damon movie called We Bought a Zoo. I know, and I've never seen it. <laughs> My husband's like, you're not watching that, and we're not buying a zoo. What about uh, working at a zoo uh, draws you to it? Just my natural love of animals. I've always had a very special kinship with animals. And that we rescue. So that's something we do. <laughs> My husband never knows what he's coming home to when he gets off of work. Surprise. Yeah, guess what? We have nursing kittens that we've got a bottle feed. Here you go, honey. Have fun. <laughs> and they definitely don't have fleas. Yeah, well, we don't even worry about it. You just do what you got to do. And I generally take the animals that have physical disabilities. So we have a lot of special needs animals. I take the ones that nobody else will take care of. It's a real shame that people won't adopt animals if they have any sort of defect. Or even just, like, for example, if a cat has black fur, million, you know, thousands and thousands of black furred cats are euthanized every year because nobody That's will right. adopt a black cat. 
That's right. Same way with uh, brown tabbies. We have a brown tabby who was kicked by a horse. He was taken to our local humane society and a vet who apparently was not a cat person, which baffles me, um, told the humane society, don't worry about it. His femoral will heal. It was crossed like an X. He laid for two months, became completely lame, couldn't walk at all. When we went to meet him, he literally pulled himself on his belly across the floor to us and crawled up my husband's chest and wrapped his front legs around his neck. And Keith looked at the guy running the Humane Society and said, well, this is the one. We're leaving now. <laughs> and uh, we took him straight to the vet, dropped $1,000, had his leg amputated had him uh, neutered and several other things done, and now he's just the happiest three-legged cat you ever saw. It's awesome. It is awesome. Who inspires you, or who do you look up to? Probably my parents. I would say my parents. They never gave up. They went without everything so that I didn't have to. My dad worked three and four jobs at a time to keep us going on the road back and forth to St. Louis, and Mom dedicated her every minute of her existence to me so i would say my parents was st louis the closest hospital for you why did your parents choose st louis my parents didn't choose st louis uh shriners chose st louis um at the time more people with oi was going to st louis unit um than any other unit N today i would have to go to lexington we wouldn't have a choice. Um, but at the time, St. Louis was doing more with us than any other hospital in the country. You know, there are stories of how doctors don't get it, and I understand that. You kind of have to have a doctor who understands. Have you ever heard of Michael White? No, I have not. Uh, he is the doctor. He's an endocrinologist. He is the doctor that came up with the uh, pomidronate infusions that help us. And he is still at St. Louis. He still works out of Shriners, but um, he's a Washington University doctor, and I still go to him at Barnes Jewish Children. So he's, I'm, he's like phenomenal. So he's, he's the guy that started it all with the meds. Now, I say he came up with the pomidronate part. He may not have. But he actually started um, in the 80s, I think in 82. I graduated high school in 80. No, that's not right. 83. Because I was a sophomore in high school. Um, he came up with a trial of sodium fluoride and sodium chloride, which I think, I think led to the pomidronate thing. I could be wrong, but I do know he was instrumental in this. It wouldn't surprise me if all, at all if he was the first one to give that class of medications to OI patients. Because that class of medication, bisphosphonate, they give it to astronauts even. So yes. it's, you know, like it's used for a wide variety of, you know, mainly for, uh, it was, my understanding is it's mainly developed for osteoporosis patients later right. in life. Right. And then they realized it could do good for other um, similar diseases. Have you uh, done anything or do you know anything about this new anti-sclerostin study that they're doing? No, I do not. The OIF has a couple of links to it. 
Um, I was disqualified because I had bone cancer in 2005. So I can't do it. But it's, it is a different class of drugs that they're going to be doing a trial on this summer. And uh, when did they start giving you pomendronate? I never had it. Oh, really? No. Um, in fact, um, what I have had is Fostamax. Um, then I developed, and we don't think it has anything to do with this, but um, I started having knee pain, not exactly in the joint, but above it. As it turned out, I had a ping pong ball-sized tumor in the uh, left femoral condyle that turned out to be chondrosarcoma, um, which is occurs when bone gets stuck in that um, cartilaginous state instead of going ahead and ossifying out. It's stuck in this one spot, and then it turned malignant, and it turned out to be nothing, no big deal. Um, they cut it out twice and did an allograft in it, and it's never recurred. Um, but a few years ago, I was sent back to Dr. White because I requested pomidronate because my bone density was dropping. And I'm with a physiatrist locally, a rehab doctor. And Dr. White agreed with me. Pomidronate was absolutely fitting for the situation. Um, came back with all the paperwork all of his suggestions and my doctor here said ah we're not going to do that you're going to do zolindronate sodium instead which is reclassed so i took the first annual infusion and at my following dexa scan i had a 25 percent increase in density in my spine and my hips which was fantastic because when I started, I was osteopenic. I wasn't osteoporotic. Two years after that, after two more infusions, I have lost it all plus more. Now I'm in full-blown osteoporosis, and they don't know why I've responded this way. And I've had a lot of dental problems from it. So I'm over a barrel here. That's interesting. You mentioned dental problems. I'm having dental problems because of it, too. So they tell really? me that's just part of it, yeah. So hmm. I have teeth that need to be pulled, but if they pull them, it won't heal. It's a cool problem. Yeah, great problem. I was told if he pulls my teeth, even the one that really, really, really needs it, that's had three root canals to the same tooth because it kept getting reinfected, uh, that there's so little bone between my gum line and the sinus cavity that my face will collapse and i'm like yeah nah leave that tooth yeah they tell me that if they pull the teeth it just won't heal and it's uncharted territory where we don't yeah. where there's no we there's nothing really you can do about it right so you know i've seen i've seen about every kind of dentist there is if, if there's a profession in dentistry i've been to it and well, they'll I, just kind of shake their heads like, I don't know. So. Well, I tried to go to Louisville, to U of L, um, to the oral surgeon there, because the oral surgeons here look at me like I'm, well, a sideshow freak, honestly. 
And they said, I'm sorry, you got the wrong insurance. I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, you have the wrong insurance. I said, you all told me you'd take Anthem. Yeah, but we take the other kind of Anthem. Oh, hey, thanks. Have a good day. What brings you joy? Well, it's going to sound corny as all get out, but just being alive. I'm not one of these people who think, oh, poor pitiful me, because I'm not like everybody else. It doesn't bother me in the least little bit. Basically, I get joy out of doing what I'm doing right now, which is taking a stroll in my wheelchair and seeing the crops growing and hearing the birds and watching the deer and the turkeys and just life. What do you consider your biggest accomplishment? Putting myself through college with no financial assistance um, and working for 20 years. My mom and dad were told I would never be able to go to school, much less graduate high school, go to college, graduate from college, work, get married, and have a home of my own. I wish I could still work, but it's just really not a possibility anymore. What's the biggest challenge you've had to overcome? I guess really an internal challenge, but that would have been when my husband and I made the decision not to have children. I always wanted a family. And that that has stayed with me longer than anything else. I think I made the right decision for us personally and for any future children we might have had, but that was the hardest one. Did you ever consider adopting children? We did, and the state of Kentucky was very, very, very hateful about it. Now, it's been a long time, but my husband and I are pushing 50 now, and to be quite honest, I'm not interested anymore, but at the time... When we looked into it, we actually looked into foster to adopt. And even though I was fully emancipated legally, I mean, I have all my rights. Nobody has guardianship of me. I was working. I have an education. I can drive. All of that, they told us in a public forum in front of other people that if we adopted, he could adopt but I could not because legally I have a severe disability and that is not conducive to motherhood that he could divorce me and we could still live together. And I'm not doing that. Um, or I could give up my rights and have him be my guardian as well. And I said, no, thank you. I worked way too hard to be an independent adult. Something that I've been aware of recently too, is especially when people do need extra help and they give up, you know, guardianship effectively, one, it's really hard to get that back. And two, they basically like keep you from voting or doing yes. even basic things like that, which I think is really yes. upsetting. It is. It is. Just because I might need physical help doesn't mean I'm a blubbering idiot and I don't know how to vote or I don't know how to drive or I don't know how to write a check. But essentially, you give up everything. It's an all-or-nothing thing. Yeah, and being a mother wasn't quite that important to me. How do you think people see you? <laughs> Repeatedly, people tell me that I am the most normal disabled person they've ever met. And I don't know what in the world they mean by that, but I, I just live my life the way I live it, like everybody else does. I don't really think about this. It just is what it is. So I'm not really sure how people see me. I think at first people are like, 
wonder what's wrong with her or I, I, my parents used to be asked a lot if I was quote retarded unquote. And I can remember being very, very young and saying, no, I'm not. Of course, that was the term that was used when I was little too. But I don't know how people see me. I hope they just see me like anybody else. Well, that was my next question. How do you wish people would see you? I wish they would just see me like they see anybody else on the street and not really pay very much close attention to me. I don't like feeling like I'm under a microscope. And sometimes I do. I get a little too much attention from strangers sometimes. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? You can now do anything you want to do with your body. That would be it. That's my last question. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Well, I have a question for you then. Fire away. How do you feel about the words osteogenesis imperfecta? Because I think they suck. They mean nothing and they mean everything. It doesn't mean enough. I think we need to change this to Lobstein syndrome like it really is. I'm like Shakespeare. What's in a name? <laughs> oh, I don't, okay. You don't really care. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't know if it keeps me awake at night, what, what, what you call it. I mean, you know, we all just kind of have to agree, agree on what words mean. I'm not saying that you're wrong, and I wouldn't, like, fight against that. But I just don't know if that's, you know, that's something that really bothers me that much. I think more than anything, I think it needs to be more widely recognized as a syndrome. Because it is. We are all so different with this. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Nope, that's it. Well, until next time, thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much to Angie for agreeing to be on this episode. And thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Ability Podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Jacob Holt. You can also like the show on Facebook and giving a rate and review on iTunes. It really helps out the show. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep on rolling. One take, Jake. It's what they call me. <laughs> Ugh.